Hello, welcome to the Friday, October 9th, 2020 edition of the Sands and Storm Center's Stormcast. My name is Johannes Ulrich, and today I'm recording from Jacksonville, Florida. When you're using APIs and cloud services, you often deal with a large number of API keys that, of course, have to be maintained, have to be rotated, and have to be kept secret. To simplify some of this, we have essentially the equivalent of a password manager for API keys. And uh, that's, I guess, how you can describe HashiCorp's vault. So what this product essentially does is that it maps your users to particular users and roles that you define in various cloud products, like, for example, AWS or Google Cloud. Well, uh, Google's project Zero took a closer look at HashiCorp Vault and found two interesting vulnerabilities. One is actually related to how Go, the language that uh, HashiCorp's vault is written in, deals uh, with XML. Most XML parsers, if you feed them documents that are part XML, part something else, well, they will just refuse to parse the document. Now, in Go's XML decoder, anything that's not XML in the beginning will be ignored. So one trick uh, these researchers played was to actually trigger a response. It was actually JSON encoded, but included the XML response that they try to get the HashiCorp wall to accept. And that's sort of how they bypassed some of the authentication in HashiCorp's wall. Now, uh, this essentially then worked against AWS and the attacker would have been able to essentially authenticate to AWS uh, using this vulnerability in HashiCorp. The second vulnerability, also uh, authentication bypass vulnerability, but against uh, Google's uh, cloud is different in that it does abuse a vulnerability, how JSON web tokens are implemented by HashiCorp Vault. All of these vulnerabilities have been addressed by HashiCorp, so should no longer really be an issue. But the interesting use case, really, if you're dealing with these kind of authentication schemes, I do recommend that you do take a look at Google's Project Zero blog for more details. Never wondered how long it takes the Ryak ransomware group uh, to actually launch it attacks and sort of go from the initial compromise of the first host in the network uh, to a full compromise of the organization and the ransom node. Well, turns out about 29 hours. The Defer report has a real nice and detailed write-up uh, about just such an attack. The initial vector here was actually, well, a malicious email, as we have so often. wasn't one of those RDP attacks or such as uh, we have sometimes seen with these ransomware gangs. RDP apparently was used later to sort of distribute malware 
across the network. But a real nice write-up and really have to appreciate if someone is coming forward and providing all these details, including indicators of a compromise, sometimes difficult to do that for an affected company. Doesn't mention if they ended up paying the ransom or which organization this really was as part of the compromise. Also tools like, for example, AdFind and WMIC, a good old tool here and Cobalt Strike, of course, uh, were used uh, by the malicious actors. Now, the ransomware gang, according to this write-up, was actually willing uh, to negotiate on uh, the ransom amount. And one thing is noted in uh, this uh, particular blog post uh, that during the ransomware negotiation, uh, they did continue to connect to the network from various IP addresses around the globe. And well, I haven't done it in a while, but it's Friday and I do have an STI student here to talk about his research paper. Ricky Tan, could you introduce yourself, please? Hey, uh, so my name is Ricky Tan. I currently uh, work as a YouTuber, actually teaching cybersecurity topics on YouTube. Uh, our channel's uh, Cyberspatial. Uh, Spatial spelled with a T, kind of like geospatial. Uh, I used to serve in the military uh, doing cybersecurity activities and uh, I've also worked in uh, kind of the commercial space uh, a little bit on and off. Jack of all trades, everything from network forensics, system administration, uh, management roles, and so currently uh, an SDI student. Yeah, so Colin, you just finished your research paper, or can you tell us a little bit about that research paper? Yeah, so the title of the research paper is uh, Network Reconnaissance Using Multigo Case File, uh, specifically with Zclogs. So uh, kind of doing a rapid recon on Zclogs using uh, network graphs. Yeah, so uh, uh, in your paper, you write a little bit about dashboards and some of the shortcomings of dashboards. Actually, uh, I just sort of wrote a little blog post about some of these issues. There's sort of half of this alert overload. How does Multico help uh, rein in some of uh, the problems of dashboards? Multico case file specifically is the free offline version of the full Multigo. It's really a tool, a link analysis tool that's used by network uh, digital investigators doing OSINT, kind of stringing the pieces together. And it is a graph-oriented tool. Dashboards and log files, uh, traditional viewing mediums we've been used to are line or row-oriented. You uh, read them from left to right sequentially. They're very good uh, to interface with computers, databases, easily compressible, storable, but they're not very human-friendly to read. Uh, something like a network graph is more friendly because they have inherent context. So everything from position, color, size, grouping, weight of the nodes, and also maybe some of the density or links between them can really reveal relationships within a data set. So this kind of visual context 
is what's useful for detecting anomalies. Yeah, so you're really going here for the visual experience you know, where an, an analyst is able uh, to quickly spot an anomaly by seeing like a different color, a different shape in these graphs, or? Yeah, typically in the computer or cyber world, the more experience you get, you start to train your mind into processing data like a computer, uh, especially if you're doing reverse engineering, reading code, reading assembly, or even reading logs, you're essentially becoming a, a more low-level parser. And for people who are not so experienced, a junior analyst, what's natural is seeing things like a person, like a human being, which we like context, we like nuances, we see patterns and shapes and colors. And so having network graphs really allows a human to leverage what's natural and what people are really good at, which is differentiating between normal and abnormal pieces of data. Now, a lot of sims and such you know, have features like network graphs. I don't see them often used in secured operation centers or such. Yes, you, know, you have sort of that NASA-style screen sometimes up with some kind of link graph. But a lot of analysts, you know, I see sort of staring at these lists of alerts. And I think part of the problem, part of the reason why that happens is performance of these tools. How do you find uh, Maltigo uh, to perform and you're running it against larger data sets. So we have to make a difference between large data sets in terms of sheer size, like megabytes, gigabytes, terabytes, and uh, large in terms of what's large for a graph. So for instance, if you had two computers talking to each other on a network, you would really have a very small network graph or a graph file, uh, even though they could be transferring huge amounts of data uh, or you know, different types of data. If you were to put that in a row-oriented log context, it would be a lot because uh, they're event-based. But then the relationships are really limited. On the other hand, you could really have a very small amount of data, but there's tremendous connections and numbers of nodes. And when I say node, I, I really mean uh, either a computer or a device or whatever you're trying to graph. And in that case, it's very, very large visually, very dense. We call these dense graphs. Multigo case file, because it's the free version, is limited at 10,000 nodes. And depending on, uh, let's say, IP addresses, uh, range, a, a subnet, really might only have 255 uh, if you're talking about a very small network. Um, but a, on a large network, you could very well have thousands and thousands of IP addresses, especially if you were to account for network scans where we're picking up on all of them. And in those cases, it can the real danger is the number of relationships between the nodes uh, rather than the absolute quantity. And the relationships or the edges, as we call them, uh, they really determine how visually accessible or interpretable a, a graph is. Uh, part of the challenge is in smartly generating your graphs and maybe even filtering down what you're showing to control the uh, 
the, the number of uh, edges and the density. Now, this may be a little bit hard to do here in the audio format, and I encourage people to really look at the paper, but can you sort of walk us through one of the cases that you sort of discuss in your paper? Yeah, so for instance, uh, one of the case studies, we took a look at the 2012 MACCDC, which stands for Mid-Atlantic Cyber Defense Comp- Collegiate Cyber Defense Competition. It has eight college blue teams, a full red team, and they are tasked with the responsibility to build a network environment, or I think it's in this case, they were it was an inherent and defend type of competition. So they inherited uh, some equipment and servers and networks, and they had to patch and configure it. And you had dedicated red team trying to attack all of them and take down their systems. Uh, the data was sourced from a company called uh, Netrasec. They're quite well known in the PCAP space. The data set was 18 gigabytes. Uh, when you merge all of the PCAPs together, we have one gigabyte of Zeek logs when you ran Zeek, uh, replayed the PCAP against it. Default scripts, default uh, configuration. And then when we graphed out the actual file, it turned out to be five kilobytes in size, uh, a CSV file in this case. And the main takeaways were we uncovered C2 infrastructure that the the red team, their entire infrastructure that they were using. Uh, The process, you start off with certain common Zeek fields, such as, let's say we wanted to visualize IP addresses mapped to user agent strings coming off of them. Uh, We can build hypotheses uh, if we have known tools or TTPs, malware indicators uh, that you suspect might be in a network or a data set. A next step after you've constructed that hypothesis, that mental model, you use standard command line tools, cut, grep, sort, unique, awk, sed, uh, and zeek cut to extract those fields from the logs. Uh, just what some one-liners to really map. In this case, we mapped source IP to user agents and then source IP to the destination IP, but also to the destination port. We import the CSV into Multigo. Uh, just as a third-party table, you select which entities to use, uh, mapping to each node. In this case, we wanted to. You really want to use entities that have contrasting colors. In Multigo, entities might be everything from a terrorist to an IP address to a location. They're uh, conceptual entities, but for the purposes of using it to visualize your Zeek logs, we want to pick the contrasting colors. Uh, after in the graph, you adjust the node sizes and the entity sizes. Uh, there's some degree settings you can change, such as I want to make the nodes bigger if there's they're connecting to many different other nodes, or I want to make the nodes bigger if many nodes connect to them. So in the graph world, we call this outbound degree or inbound degree. In the case of the IP addresses to user agent strings, there's very stark findings that immediately appear. We see groups of IP addresses that all share the same user agent string, which is normal, which is maybe what you would expect if uh, many devices have the same browser or it's a server and they're running some automated script with curl or Python in the background. 
they would share the same user agent stream. But on the other hand, you have a few IPs with dozens of user agent strings coming off of them. And without any deeper analysis, this is very apparent in the graph. And when you do take a closer look, you can see the specific user agent strings associated with IPs. And a lot of these are completely illegitimate, like Chucky or in-map scripting engine or system ID. So we can repeat this analysis using other models, such as destination IP to port. And when we do that, we find, again, anomalous HTTP ports that are non-standard, such as 1337 that is being hosted on a a web server. Uh, In this case, we were looking at the HTTP log specifically. Uh, By filtering the graph to just hone in on the IPs that are connecting to the suspected node, uh, we can paint an even better picture of uh, what the conversations look like. Once you get to this step, then it's worthwhile to zoom in from a 30,000-foot level of the data relationships down to a 1,000-foot view. And a 1,000-foot view is Wireshark. Open up Wireshark, filter on the IP of interest, and then we were actually able to extract uh, a, a Teamsploit configuration file that was transferred in a uh, tarball uh, across the network. So that's pretty cool. So essentially, the graph tells you where to look closer, you know, because you can't really look at, uh, what do you say, like, you know, a few gigabytes of traffic in Bioshark sort of a packet at a time. But using the graph basically told you what part of that traffic uh, you probably want to look at with Bioshark. And that then led you to the solution here, basically this configuration file that you found. Yes, uh, absolutely. And not only once we we do, we don't stop at the configuration file. The configuration file actually contained a lot of unique identifiers, uh, such as backdoor ports and uh, the IP address space that the red team was using. And what we now could do is filter based off of those identifiers to see, okay, show me all of the uh, attacker IPs and the victim IPs that were listening on this specific backdoor port. And then we were able to um, uh, kind of show, here's all the bad guys, here's all the victims, and they're all connected. So that's pretty cool. Uh, Anything next for you? Are you going to sort of expand that work or uh, what are you sort of working on next? Yeah, so uh, right now I I am really full-time doing the... uh, the the cyber media business uh, I'm, I'm we're building and uh, making the field of cybersecurity more accessible to to people trying to get into it uh, in the video side and in, in, in the media realm. So a lot of our videos, you know, we're talking about um, doing guides, walkthroughs, but also things uh, that are uh, more high level, such as how North Korea does cyber operations, and really taking the knowledge that once was only existed in blog articles and Twitter and GitHub Stack Overflow, and then putting it, uh, also visualizing it, uh, but in video form. It's very nice. What is the name of the YouTube channel again? Cyberspatial. Cyberspatial with T you said there. Uh, kind of like geospatial. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. And the link uh, to the paper will be in the show notes. So uh, thanks again for joining me here, Ricky. And uh, that's it uh, for today. Thanks again for listening and 
Talk to you again on Monday. Bye.